You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Staying nice and warm at this point. Yeah, it's actually quite, quite sunny out and nice. I'm getting, a, we just went into, um, joined you in full on lockdown. So that's been, uh, you know, that just started yesterday, but I honestly, I'm not sure how it differs from what we've actually been doing uh, on my end anyways. Um, I haven't been doing much of anything at all. So, yeah. So as well, regardless of what uh, stage we're in, I mean, right now we're in lockdown, but even if we weren't, um, we should all take the initiative to ensure that we're very responsible as to preventing as much as we can the spread. So yeah, it's uh, the last. Actually, I've been pretty good through it all. We will persevere and get through it. Um, hopefully, listening to some good podcasts will be uh, part of the remedy. So that's yeah. a wink, wink, sure. nudge, nudge. But um, yeah, so you know, I think we're we're through the the halfway point, God willing. Anyways, but. Uh, on to, on to other things. I try not to talk about that as too much because uh, there's already so many other people doing conversation for us. So we'll, we'll move on to happier things. Very well, Kathy. Today's show is taped, so no calling in, unfortunately. But please subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. And to remind you, as was pointed out, the Health Hub um, on most of these platforms, there's no space in between the three words. Two, Yeah, three words. Uh, so two <laughs> spaces between the three words. So if you are looking for us, uh, don't put any spaces in there. Um, you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybsa.com. Today, we are going to be talking about a lesser known psychotherapy called EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's a fairly new, non-traditional type of psychotherapy, but it's growing in popularity, particularly for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. So as we try and do here on the Health Hub, um, things that are involved in integrative health and the health front, uh, we like to bring them forward to you so you can evaluate, see if they can be a part of your tool belt. And we have a very interesting guest joining us today to talk about it. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Danziger, and he is a rocker who got sober in the late 80s and then became a sought-after clinician, writer, and meditation teacher. 
He became a master EMDR therapist and provider of EMDR basic training and advanced topic courses as senior faculty with the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. He is the creator and founder of the MET-TA protocol, Mindfulness and EMDR Treatment Template for Agencies, a design for addiction and mental health agency treatment using Buddhist mindfulness and EMDR therapy as the theoretical orientation and primary clinical practice. It is now used in multiple agencies throughout the country. He has been practicing Buddhist mindfulness for over 30 years and teaches Dharma classes in Los Angeles and other centers internationally. He is the author of Clinical Dharma, A Path for Healers and Helpers, and Mindfulness for Anger Management, Transformative Skills for Overcoming Anger and Managing Powerful Emotions. He is also co-author with Jamie Merrick of EMDR Therapy and Mindfulness for Trauma-Focused Care. Additionally, Dr. Danziger is the co-author of Trauma and the 12 Steps, a trauma-responsive workbook in trauma, and the 12 Steps Daily Meditation and Reflections, both companion pieces to the newly updated Trauma and the 12 Steps by Dr. Jamie Merrick. He avidly blogs and podcasts on topics related to mental health, recovery, and mindfulness. So this is a new therapy for me and probably for a lot of you. So I will be learning right alongside of you. So please do stay tuned and we will be back to talk to Dr. Stephen Danziger. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, today's show is recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. And I think I forgot to mention at the, the start of the show, if you do have any questions, if you would like to uh, deep dig deeper with fa uh, Father, my goodness me, with uh, Dr. Danziger, just do email us at uh, thh.radiomaria.ca. If you have any questions or would like any other show put on, uh, let us know. We do our best to try and help you out. After that, Dr. Danziger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kathy. I'm really, really happy to be here. Well, this is a new therapy. And as I mentioned to the listeners at the, at the outset, I'm going to be learning as, as well as they as we move along here. So I'm very interested in it. Um, I, I read your bio, read everything, and I thought a great guest to have on the show. Um, one of the very interesting pieces is your history. So let's get everybody up to speed as to why you are here in this space and, and where you came from. We all have a good story and yours is really fun. Oh, thanks, Kathy. So I, <laughs> yeah, my story starts in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, I was raised there till I was about six. And then we moved to Long Island, the suburbs of New York. And when I was really young, um, it's important to the story. When I was really young, I skipped a grade. And when I skipped a grade, it was all the rage back in the 70s. You know, if you got straight A's for more than five minutes, they pushed you ahead. And what happened was I uh, landed into a field of bullies. Mm. And so life kind of took this turn for the first time. I was very, so I thought the world was kind of okay uh, up until that time. And then I was like, hmm, you know, some people don't have a lot of uh, compassion. And then when I was 13, uh, my cousin, who was like an older brother figure, passed away suddenly uh he was uh, actually killed by a drunk driver and 
That then drove, I would say, the next number of years of my life, which uh, unfortunately was I turned to alcohol and drugs uh, for solace. And uh, what came out of that was eventually I, I came into recovery. Uh, and now I've been in recovery for 31 years. And what happened when I came into recovery was I was introduced to uh, all forms of uh, spiritual practice uh, through the 12-step program originally. And I really just went into that uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, and I also went for some vocational rehabilitation. Uh, I had been a, a essentially a punk rock drummer up until that point. That was and the fun part that I was alluding to. <laughs> <laughs> I think I set that up wrong. <laughs> It's okay. I went straight to the tragedy. Yeah. So the, oh my. Yeah. Well, it, 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 that all happened at the same time. I, my first club date that I played was when I was 16 years old, and there I was in the in the New York City uh, punk rock scene, and um, and it was it was you know it was fun, exciting. It also helped to accelerate, I would say, that my addiction uh, because there were some older folks me out to discover some more ways to. To, to do that, but the, the point being though, that you know, music actually, I would say uh, in a lot of ways saved my life. Mm -hmm. You know, like as I went through those tumultuous times in my life, um, I just, you know, the sounds and the, and the community and the, and the lyrics and just everything kind of fed me. Um, and what brought me into recovery, I'm glad that you, you, you kind of, you know, you brought me there because, um, you know, my recovery started when the band that I was in that was going to become famous uh, broke up. You know, the lead singer just said, I'm done and, and ran away. And and that the end of my music career really just sort of propelled me into, well, there's nothing left. I might as well just stop, you know, like see if I can get sober. And um, and then when I went for vocational rehab, there was there's a program. It's still there in New York State that's run by the State Office of Disabilities. Uh, to help people with addictions to go through a like a clear, uh, path exploration and training if they needed it and want it, I became a high school English teacher. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and that high school English teacher job, the first one, was in a neighborhood called Crown Heights, uh, Brooklyn. And the summer after my first year teaching, there was civil unrest in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And my students were, were just, what was that? And I was like, well, I actually know a little bit about this because my grandfather taught me a lot about those kinds of issues. And I just started teaching on the fly. And before you know it, I'm being trained by all these nonprofits. And then the next segment of my career after another year in the school system was uh, as a, a diversity and inclusion trainer for like 15 years. Um, at the same time that my music career kicked back in and I, I got a record deal with, with uh, a friend of mine and uh, went on the road and was making records again. So uh, that was kind of life. And uh, through that diversity work, I learned a lot more about the trauma of people, like different types of trauma, you know, um, uh, of the more uh, global variety besides the interpersonal or, you know, that which happens in families and such. And uh, eventually my therapist had kept saying to me, you know, you're kind of doing therapy in the, that work. You should be a therapist. And I kept pushing back against him for a long time. And then when I moved out here to LA in 2002, 
it seemed like all my friends who had moved out here before me had become therapists. And so they all started, they've climbed on the bandwagon. And um, eventually I went back to school and I got my master's and my doctorate. And while I was in school, I started working in addiction treatment centers because uh, I had friends in that community. Um, and then I got trained uh, or actually first I was exposed to EMDR therapy that we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, when my supervisor at my first training site was using it a lot. And this is back in 2005, 2004, 2005, when that hadn't started up yet, where, where it, was, uh, it wasn't being used as a frontline therapy in a treatment center setting. And she and I had a particularly difficult uh, case, so, you know, someone who was just struggling. And I was actually working with them on their mindfulness practice, because that's something, you know, for the last 30 years, essentially, uh, I've been uh, sitting mindfulness and also then teaching it. And uh, she was doing EMDR with him and, and he wasn't getting better. So she called in this uh, consultant and I sat in on their calls and I had no idea what they were. I had a little bit of an idea what they were talking about, but I didn't know all the language. And then I witnessed this young like over the next month when she implemented this. And I said, I have to get trained in this. And that consultant happened to be giving a training like that next month. And he trained me and uh, it's important to my story and sort of the way that I see how powerful this therapy is, is that he was also one of the early people who said, this is a complete psychotherapy. It's not just an adjunctive technique. It can be used that way. Uh, but it's a complete psychotherapy and you can just do, you can be an EMDR therapist and nothing else. And I said, okay. Cause I also noted for myself uh, the deeply uh, uh, mindful origins of it that were uh, kept a little bit undercover for many years because uh, mindfulness only became sort of uh, acknowledged in the clinical world uh, in the really in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, so, so when uh, Dr. Shapiro, Francine Shapiro developed the therapy back in 1987, uh, she didn't really talk about the mindfulness part because she already had enough people saying, hmm, this seems a little weird, this therapy. Mm -hmm. If she had added mindfulness to the mix, they would have just run her out of town. So, um, so I was able to kind of, I, I didn't even really intuit it. I just noticed it. I noticed the mindfulness. And so that's how I've been practicing it ever since, you know, 2005 as a frontline therapy as the therapy of choice. Whoever walks in my office, that's what's happening. Um, and now I'm a trainer. I've uh, trained over a thousand clinicians and um, 2021 is going to be busy. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let's step back here. And we've done the acronym EMDR. Can you explain what it is? Because as I said, it's new to me. Um, so we're going to have to do baby steps with all of us here. That's okay. And you know, <clears throat> one of the major parts of the therapy is psychoeducation. So it's almost like, you know, I'll give you the brief therapy session, right? And, and the listeners too, is that, um, so Francine Shapiro was a cancer survivor. Uh, she was a psychologist and also a cancer survivor. And she was out seeking uh, sort of mind, body, spirit, you know, treatments for uh, her cancer. And 
uh, one of the things that she did get was uh, mindfulness training from a teacher named Stephen Levine, who passed away a few years ago. And he was uh, a leader in the uh, understanding and going through uh, death and di- you know, death and dying uh, back. Oh, let's hold on a minute there. We're freezing. Let's see if we can bring Dr. Steve back on. Do we have you now? Do we? Yep. We just froze there a bit. So you can, can continue. We, we were talking about Dr. Shapiro. Um, so continue from there. So, um, so she got this training from uh, Stephen Levine in uh, mindfulness. And she also got what is still traditionally uh, the uh, psychological treatment for cancer often includes a lot of visualization, mm-hmm. uh, visualizing the cancer shrinking or going away. Anyway, she was walking through the park. So the story goes one day and she was thinking one of her sort of scary thoughts about her cancer. And then she noticed that her eyes were kind of tracking trees back and forth. You know, like when you're walking through mm-hmm. the park and she noticed that they were kind of moving rapidly. And she was curious because she had a mindfulness practice. She was curious. And so she just sort of noticed how her eyes wanted to do that. And she kept doing it. And then she stopped. And at the the eye movement, she noticed she wasn't really thinking about the thought anymore. So she thought, huh, that's weird. I'm going to try that again. So she purposely brought up another, you know, scary thought, uh, negative thought and did it again on purpose, moved her eyes back and forth rapidly. And And she's looking at something at this point. She's focusing on something. Okay. Her eyes aren't closed. Exactly. They're not closed. She's, she's still walking. She's still walking through the park and just watching uh, back and forth. Uh, Trees probably is, you know, what she Mm -hmm. used to markers. And at the end of the second set of eye movements, she's like, wow, I, I, I'm not really charged up about this anymore. So she went back to where she lived and there was another psychologist living in the guest house. And uh, she said, hey, are, are you willing to try something with me? And she, he, he said, sure. And she said, okay, so think of something awful. And he did, okay, follow my fingers, right? Back and forth and just track my fingers back and forth. And at the end he said, yeah, feels better. That is the birth of EMDR. And going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, that's why you know, a lot of people are like, huh, What's that about? But what she did was she noticed this mechanism of action and she noticed what happened. She went back to her workshop essentially and put together really uh, the greatest hits of psychology, Western, Eastern and indigenous and put together a protocol um, and started you know, trying to see what happened when you did this protocol with folks. And she also came up with a, a model or a theory for it which is backwards. It's kind of the backwards from the usual way that psychologies are uh, developed uh, or therapies are developed, where usually there's a theory and then there's a way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Here she had to like ha- explain it and she used um, learning and memory uh, theory and behavioral theory uh, going back to the sixth, even earlier, um, uh, really the uh, three-stage model of trauma treatment of Pierre Genet from 1889. Um, all informed what she thought she saw happening, which at first she, she, she th- called it eye movement desensitization, EMD, 
because she thought, oh, this is like Valium without the side effects. She's <laughs> great. You know, it's just kind of knocking it down a notch. But then as she did her protocol with more people, she noticed, oh, no, 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 no. This is much more is going on. People were having aha moments. People were having sustainable you know, relief and symptom relief. And then sort of the memories seem to be reprocessed. They seem to be you know, stored in a different way in a different place where they could have insight into them and make meaning of what had happened. Whereas before it was just you know, sights and sounds and trauma. Mm-hmm. And so uh, her initial um, uh, uh, research group was uh, sexual assault victims and um, uh, Vietnam War vets. And their PTSD uh, was ameliorated by the therapy. And six month, year follow up were all great. And that was the beginning of her then changing it to eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's it's when you first talked about her her experience going through the park. I was immediately taken to uh, a breathing technique or something that makes you present yes. in the moment. Um, and I know it's it's far greater the therapy and the treatment. We're going to talk about that in the second half. But is this something that you equip? your patients with so that if they are feeling a traumatic memory come back, they can initiate this on their own? It's such a great question. And so the the protocol is an eight phase protocol. And so second stage of Janae's model of trauma treatment is what you just described, which is the reprocessing of the memories, which is the uh, that which should happen in the presence of another, mm-hmm. a trained clinician, right? What we're preparing them with is in the first two phases, when we're taking the history and building the relationship, the rapport, because that's part of the therapy, like any other therapy, it's a huge part of the therapy. It's very relational. Mm -hmm. In the second phase, we're giving them as many resources as possible, as many resources as possible in order to increase their distress tolerance, right? That they're able to take on more and more difficult affect without acting out or having, you know, a relapse of their depression or their anxiety, et cetera. And We also give them enough so that when we do get to the trauma reprocessing, which asks them to sort of not, it's not like exposure in as much as they're reliving it over and over again, but we do activate a memory in order to reprocess it. So we give them resources that also increase their affective window of tolerance so that they can handle more, you know, within the session and be able to get the relief that comes through the reprocessing. Which makes a ton of sense because I imagine that these traumatic events happen. Well, I imagine I read, of course, these traumatic events aren't going to happen all the time within the confines of a clinician's office. Yeah. So the benefit of, of this treatment and why I wanted to bring it forward and, and show everybody um, and learn myself is that it, it, it expands beyond uh, the clinician's office. And it's, it's a viable treatment that can take people through an event if applied and taught properly by um, clinicians like yourself who understand it. I think we're going to take a quick break here because I think the next question is going to lead us into a long conversation. So everybody will be back in just a couple of minutes to carry on our conversation. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. 
a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great conversation here with Dr. Steve. Let's continue on about this therapy. Let's, uh, you know, it's it's got levels, obviously, by the way you've you've uh, explained it to us. Um, and let's back it up a little bit here. Is this a therapy only for PTSD, or do you apply it to a lot of different areas in in psychology? So uh, I and the folks that I train, and most of the people in my sector of the MDR community are using it far and wide with a variety, if not most uh, diagnoses and difficulties. As for the evidence base, um, it's a, one of the most researched therapies that's out there at this point, And it is considered evidence-based for PTSD. Uh, I think 2013 or 14 is when the World Health Organization declared it evidence-based for PTSD. Um, but what happened was when Shapiro developed it, I think she really knew that's why she went straight for PTSD as the diagnosis that she would try and treat with it, because she knew that if it worked for that, it would possibly probably work for all other trauma related um, difficulties below that threshold. Mm -hmm. And so that's the place that we've been working from in the trauma community is that uh, Shapiro's idea was that the main problem uh, was that people have maladaptively stored or unprocessed memories that are maladaptively stored in places of poor storage for long-term. And they need to be adaptively moved, moved to an adaptive resolution to where very simply from the limbic part of the brain and mm -hmm. or the reptilian brain and or the body, right? That's where it's stored to move it to the cognitive areas of the brain where I now know, you know, yes, that happened, but it's not happening now, right? That's the essential problem. The, the interesting thing, and you know, this is really a learning piece for me too, because I work with cancer patients and I notice this area, this space between the end of treatment and getting back into quote, normal life. And where a lot of emotions tend to be buried as you're going through treatment, um, you bury those emotions because you've got you've got a, a bigger thing going on here. Um, and, and I understand where she came from. It really resonated when she was talking about scary experiences as a cancer patient myself as well. Um, and, and what I'm trying to like, these things can be buried without us knowing. And We've gone, you know, I, I know that we some there are some areas in psychology that pull away from actually talk therapy because it can be too, too traumatizing. And this seems to be a bridge of both where you're gently calling things forth. But what I find so valid about it is that you are, are you are encouraging people to deal with these emotions in a way that they can handle that they can take on. If you don't deal with them, that leads to a bunch of problems. If they come back too strong, that can lead to a whole bunch of problems. Am I correct in that? A hundred percent. And then people come to EMDR therapy from a number of different uh, directions. Like some people hear about it and, and they come to it and it's what they want. It's what they're seeking. They kind of know what they're going to do. And then a lot of people come, uh, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum, who've been maybe through a lot of therapy, a lot of talk therapy, and they've gotten, they've totally advanced their lives and they're feeling better, 
but they come and they say something to the effect of there's these three or four things that are just stuck, mm-hmm. haven't moved an inch. And that could be after, you know, even years of therapy. And what that is, is it's those uh, memories, emotions uh, that are that are stuck in a place where they're not available to that part of the mind. Like I might remember, like I might be able to tell you, oh, in 1987, this happened, that happened, but there's no integration, there's no connection. Mm -hmm. So what we do in the therapy is in that first history taking phase is we utilize, you know, sort of a more thematic approach. And we tell people, you don't have to tell me your whole story because that is sometimes what re-traumatizes people. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to tell me your whole story for you to get well, just give me the newspaper headlines. And we are to put together the newspaper headlines. And while we're doing that, we're like taking breathers, right? Like when I was 12, this happened. Okay, let's, you know, take a breath. Let's hang out. Let's let's Mm -hmm. do a resource, whatever, whatever it is they're capable of in that moment and no further than that. And eventually you have a list of the things that are pertinent. And then we apply the reprocessing steps one at a time to each of the target memories. Now, what Shapiro understood about the nature of of memory is that memories are in associative memory networks. And there is often a generalizability between targeted memories that we're working on. So let's say we're working on that thing that happened when the person was 12. As we're working on it, we're also reprocessing the other memories that are connected Mm -hmm. to that. So then when we finish that memory, we come back to our list and it's like two or three or four memories. Oh yeah, that's not a thing anymore. That's not a thing anymore. So it's this really, I think, you know, gentle way, even at the same time that we're, we're bringing up this terrible stuff. But once we apply the bilateral stimulation, which is the eyes moving back and forth, or uh, we can also use audio tones or we can use vibration, you know, like holding paddles or you know, anything like that. Um, once that happens, you know, it starts moving along pretty quickly, right? You said audio tones. Now, is that like one ear, the other ear, back and forth, back and forth? Exactly. Okay. Um, what is the mechanism of, are you trying to cross stimulate both parts of the brain? Is that what you're trying to do? Are you trying to give these memories a resting place or are you trying to make them forget? It's so it's such a great question. Because sort of both and neither, right? Okay. What we're trying, what we're trying to do is where where they have a place to rest, and then they have a place to transform, reprocess. Um, the, those aspects of the memory that are no longer useful, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of what the limbic brain and the body does, it's all about survival, right? In the time of the trauma, and when we by the way, when we use the word trauma, it's a very broad definition. It is like we're not talking just war vet trauma. Trauma can be from a, a, a chronic illness that you haven't dealt with. Uh, and, and I think people need to realize that because I think a lot of healing is missed because we are not evoking these emotions. And I think it's a key piece that we're missing. Well, and the, and the verbiage that, that uh, Shapiro used in the beginning was big T trauma and small T trauma. And very, in the very beginning, she said small t trauma, which usually happens over time and is like lots of incidents that would be below the threshold of a, a PTSD diagnosis is just as, if not more damaging than, you know, uh, trauma, big t trauma. So eventually she changed her language and in the trauma community, it's, it, it's a consensus 
it's trauma and adverse life events, right? And essentially, you know, anything that happens, you know, uh, you know, this morning, my, my, my 11 year old woke up and said, I don't want to go to online school today. <laughs> and so that could, that could be, and what I said was, oh, honey, you know, and that was that. But, you know, I could make that into World War III, right? I mean, yep. anything and everything is available to be processed incorrectly or to turn into a fight or flight uh, kind of scenario. So, you know, in answer to the, the question around, you know, is, that a, is it a mindfulness thing? Is it a rest thing? Is it, you know, what is it doing? Um, so, you know, with brain science still, and it's maybe it's a toddler now, it's not in its infancy anymore, but, you know, the, all of the mechanisms of action are positive. So right, left brain integration is definitely one of those. Another, we're mimicking REM sleep. And mm -hmm. it's during REM sleep with the rapid eye movements that are going on, where a lot of the data dump and the memories going from middle term storage to long term storage is done. So we're replicating that. Uh, another theory is uh, around the working memory that this activity of the back and forth is giving the working memory a task that sort of gives it a jolt and jogs it and brings the, that which you're activating to start reprocessing again or start processing again. And then another one, the fit, my favorite, the, uh, and then there's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And then there's also uh, the orienting response which we share, you know, with the animals, you know, which like, for instance, think about a deer in the forest and they're looking up a hundred times an hour, right. You know, to, to, because they hear sound and 98 times out of a hundred, it's, um, it's nothing boring, you know, uh, wind through the trees. I'm going to keep eating grass one time out of a hundred. It's uh, another deer that they're very interested in, you know, that, that kind of excitement go towards. And then one time out of a hundred, let's say it's a bear. So it runs, it gets away. It doesn't go to the bar to talk to the other deer about the bear incident because it's a deer. It, um, uh, it uh, takes about an hour for all the adrenaline and the other hormonal changes and everything else to kind of run its course and get out of the body. And, one, and then sometimes there's like violent shaking. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. seen this either in a person or an animal uh, at the end of that fight, extreme fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, they're not looking up 102 times an hour. They're just eating grass again, looking up 100 times an hour, taking care of themselves, right? Um, and so with a, with, a, with a person, with a human being, with this extra, you know, sort of uh, part of the brain that we have, you know, the more cognitive areas, um, sometimes the brain can go, oh, man, that was awful. I'm never going to think about that again. And this is happening below the level of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's impossible. The memory is going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other side, which is, oh, man, that was awful. I'm going to be looking for that everywhere all the time, right? So hypervigilance, another, you know, in, in its extreme form, a PTSD symptom. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the freeze response, right, which is uh, almost separate from those two, uh, where, uh, you know, the dissociation uh, occurs and or, you know, either a blackout in extreme, extreme forms of um, uh, fight or flight, uh, or just, you know, the memory is stored nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the theory is that the bilateral stimulation, whether it's audio tones or vibrational or eye movements, is the equivalent of, you know, the 98 times out of 100. Boring. 
And then we activate the memory at the same time. And eventually through the application of the protocol, by the end, the memory is now in that part of the brain where it goes, you know, boring or not a threat. So you're trying to desensitize these memories. Yes, we desensitize them and reprocess them, meaning that the desensitization is the de-escalation of, the, of, of how awful it feels. Mm-hmm. But then at the, at the end of the protocol or, or towards the end of the protocol, phase five and phase six, five, phase five is the installation of a positive belief state to go with the memory as it's now. Okay. So you're not leaving it hanging. Not at all. So we're, we're working down to a zero disturbance and we're working ourselves up to a level, the highest level is seven of belief that in the positive belief that goes with the memory as it's stored now. So are you doing talk therapy as part of this or is it, are you working through all of this? So once they can kind of get that emotion where it's not triggering the adrenals and that fear response, do you initiate talk therapy or is that a part of it at all? So it talk therapy, the best way I can answer that is that, um, so I've given a, a couple of talks at the internet, you know, at the Andrea, the international EMDR conference the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And actually this year, it was the role of spirituality in, in EMDR therapy. And the year before it was, uh, it's always EMDR. EMDR is a complete psychotherapy. So talk therapy, as it were, and any other therapy you can think of kind of lives within EMDR in in some sense or another. So yeah, we're not not just going through a cold clinical exercise or anything like that. When we are doing the reprocessing steps, which is phases three through six, that's where it looks very particular or peculiar or unique in that the way we're relating to each other, we're not having a conversation like you would. Um, you know, in talk therapy or just talking. Um, But in phases one and two, you know, where we're getting the history and all that, and, you know, there's, there's often plenty of talk. And then in phase eight, which is um, reevaluation, which is the ongoing treatment planning. And something that you said earlier that very few people say to me when they're first talking to me about the therapy to find out about it is the continuation. Most of my clients get better outside, you know, they're only with me maybe for an hour a week, you know, Mm -hmm. they have all these hours of their lives. And what happens is, is that, you know, we go through the process and that process continues outside the office. So they're given tools. They have tools and the sometimes let's say I'm working with someone and they get down to a really low level. Like it's, it's a two level of disturbance. And they're like, I feel pretty good in between sessions that goes down to a zero, the positive belief strengthens, right? And then they come back to my office the next time. And this is all phase eight, right? This is a loop of phase eight. Phase eight is all everything in between sessions, including the very beginning of the next session where I then check in with them. And oftentimes in situation, like I just described, they'll, be, they'll say, oh yeah, it's a zero. I believe I am safe now. Um, let's move on. What's the next thing we're gonna work on? I have to tell you, um, you know, I do, uh, we're, we're approaching 200 shows and the shows that excite me the most are where I, I'm interviewing people like you, where I don't know a lot about the therapy or, you know, what your expertise is. And I can see it unfolding in front of me, the potential. 
And I think that it is an amazing thing that uh, you're doing and that you can offer people. And literally, this is a movement for me in the last 40 minutes of our or whatever time we've, we've been talking because I didn't know a lot about it. I, I understood what it was, but I can see the application now for, for so many different things, even in my own practice. Uh, so thank you so much for doing that. I, it's, it's a real, it's been a real eye opener for me. And I've, I've learned so much in this, this last little bit from you. It's something that I will want to continue to talk to you about because I can see it as being so valid for the people I work with. And I think as, as practitioners, the more you work with people, the more you can see avenues of, of help that you can give. And as I said, this area of healing and spiritualness, which I am so happy that people are starting to talk about mainstream now, because spiritualness has a has a meaning. Mm-hmm. We didn't even get into this part of it, and and I know this is a big piece of of, of you, uh, but spiritualness is huge in whatever form it, it is of you. Is you know, nobody should preach spirituality, a particular one, because everyone can have a spiritualism, and it's key to healing. And it's missing in so many areas of health. So I really want to thank you for taking the time uh, and joining us today. It's been enlightening for me. Can people get in touch with you if they want to read material or are you doing virtual um, sessions with people? Yes. So, um, you know, I'm working 100% from uh, a telehealth perspective. I have Mm -hmm. a very, I have a small practice, but also because I've trained a lot of people, if you're interested in EMDR therapy, uh, after listening to this, uh, you can reach out to me at uh, drdanziger.com. It has everything that I do. And uh, steve at drdanziger.com is the email address. And I'm glad to, you know, uh, inform folks more directly. Uh, there's also a lot of information on my website and a lot of links to more places to get more information. And even, um, I'm, you know, I'm assuming uh, it's a mostly, I know it's international, but it's a Canadian audience. And if you go to emdrcanada.org, there's actually a lot of information there and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, there's a find a therapist tool. Oh, interesting. Uh, you okay. can find uh, whatever province you're in, you can find a therapist. But um, I'm always uh, excited when I get um, uh, emails for, uh, after podcasts so uh, or radio shows. So please feel free. Oh, wonderful. Thank you again so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much. And everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.